Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar, Inc. Our guest this week is Rick Reeder. Rick is BlackRock's Global Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income and co-head of BlackRock's Global Fixed Income Platform. In addition, Rick serves as a member of BlackRock's Global Operating Committee and is chairman of the BlackRock Firmwide Investment Council. As part of his responsibilities, Rick manages several prominent BlackRock strategies, including BlackRock Global Allocation, BlackRock Total Return, and BlackRock Strategic Income Opportunities. He's currently a member of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's Investment Advisory Committee on Financial Markets. Before joining BlackRock in 2009, Rick was president and CEO of R3 Capital Partners, and prior to that did a stint at Lehman Brothers. Rick earned his bachelor's degree in finance from Emory University and his MBA from the Wharton School of Business. Rick, welcome to The Long View. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So maybe for starters, where do we find you today and how has the way you work changed amid the coronavirus crisis? So um, so I'm actually working from Florida. Came down here about a month or so ago with my whole family. Uh, we live in New Jersey and the idea was, you know, separate and, you know, work from here. And it's... Um, it's worked out if anybody ever saw my office and all the screens that I have up and uh, it's like an audio visual uh, extravaganza in my office, but it's worked really, really well. But communication, I mean, one thing we've come to discover is technology works. And I think more and more companies from our, our industry to technology to other businesses are going to realize that you can be incredibly productive. I was looking at our data from the trading side, how much we've traded in things like credit. We actually had a couple of days where we broke, not only broke records of how much we traded, some of it was because a new issue market was so heavy, but it's also the fact that you can transact in this environment. I was trying to say, not only we break records, but I think it was one day was double our prior record. I know it's technology works, communication works. We just have to do it more regularly. And, you know, we have more meetings where we get groups of people on the phone to talk about what's happening in different sectors, but it's been, um, it, it feels like a more normal, abnormal experience in terms of from a transaction point of view and from a business operating point of view. Yeah, since you mentioned that, I'm curious from a business operating point of view and how it is you and your team work, have you begun to grapple with maybe how you might change the way you work in the future as a team? Yes. is, um, And I'd say we haven't really devised what the long-term plan is yet. But it goes without saying, I've been literally watching headlines over the last few minutes of companies determining that that larger portion of their workforce will work from home and or have remote locations and don't have people as concentrated in one specific area. So we haven't specifically game planned around how we're going to do that from here, but there is no question about it. We're going to do more of that. I mean, one of the things that's actually been pretty elegant over the years is having analysts that cover certain sectors like energy be in Houston or technology to be located in San Francisco, et cetera. And I think you'll see more and more of that locationally efficient, but also you realize that whether it's people for a quality of life point of view, or quite frankly, just a business operational point of view, that I think you'll see more of that from our industry and from our company for sure. 
So before we discuss what looks attractive and what doesn't, many of our listeners allocate capital either for themselves or for their clients. Drawing from your own work, what is a framework that you'd suggest that they use when assessing the fundamental merits of various asset classes, especially when things are as uncertain as they are right now? So, Christine, I have this view that I've had for a really long time, and maybe it's simplistic, but haven't done... I think every asset class from private investments to real estate, to securitized assets, to uh, equities. And I have a really simple framework, but it works for me. And that is I look at three lenses whenever I look at any asset. So I look at leverage, liquidity, and cash flow. And I do these um, client calls I do all the time. And I always say, I always try and bring things back to those three lenses. So why is that? And by the way, why has it been so acutely important today? You know, if you start with cash flow, you know, how much cash flow do you think you're getting today? Where is it going from here? What's the stability of that cash flow, et cetera? If I can get my arms around knowing cash flow, and by the way, it's not earnings when I look at an equity, although obviously you look at earnings, but it's I want to know cash flow. I want to know free cash flow. And then after I know that, then I want to know like the leverage. And so that I want to understand how does that cash flow get down to where I am? Am I a senior bondholder? Am I an equity holder? Am I mezzanine? And if I know my cash flow and my leverage, then I've got a pretty good idea where I'm going. And then the third point being liquidity. And that is something that is <laughs> obviously has become acutely important today. But you know, if you understand where a company's leverage is or a company, a CLO, a real estate transaction, the liquidity is how do you get from here to there? How do you get the um you know, that you can survive and are you running enough liquidity in your portfolio? You see companies that are actually their leverage is moderate, but they haven't managed their liquidity and vice versa. You know, if you have abundant levels of liquidity, you can run a higher leverage position. So you need to think about those things in concert. So maybe it's for my years are coming up on the credit side, but those are the three things that I look at. And, and, and quite frankly, it works for anything I look at. And I think it's part of, you know, I've got more and more involved over the years in equities and it's been incredible. And I, I, you know, one man's opinion. I think when people look at equities, they always look at PE ratio and earnings. And I just don't think, it, unless you understand how that company throws off cash flow, and then how that cash flow gets down to the equity holder, and then how they manage their liquidity around it, then I don't think you get a fulsome read on it. So anyway, that's been my metric for a number of years. It's simple, but it's incredibly applicable, or sincerely applicable to virtually anything I look at. That's helpful. So maybe we can do a before and after of sorts. You run BlackRock Global Allocation Fund. Can you walk us through what your thinking and positioning was pre-COVID and contrast that with your thinking and positioning after, and I suppose amidst the coronavirus? And and perhaps you could reference the three sort of facets that you talked about earlier, sure. leverage, liquidity, and cash flow, and perhaps how you've twiddled those knobs yep. as we've transitioned from pre to post. Sure. So- you know, first of all, I have a core thesis around, uh, you know, particularly in global allocation, and uh, you wouldn't be surprised by how I think about equity allocation. And I always try and get our equity allocations to what I call the fast rivers of cash flow. And I always find, like, if you have what global allocation allows you to do is look across all different asset classes, debt, equity, et cetera, what you want to hold your equity in what are the fastest rivers of cash flow that are the most convex. So things like technology, healthcare, some of the consumer spaces where you have a growth potential and real convexity. And quite frankly, a lot of those companies that we look at have been ones that have been putting money into R&D and CapEx, et cetera. And those are the ones that perform. And so that gets into the, uh, you know, how do we get 
equity in. And that's how certainly pre-COVID and post, which we'll talk about the tweaking of that since. And then, so what do we do on the debt side? You know, I always say, like, why do people own utility stocks and equity fund? People say, gosh, my utility stocks did well. Really, you should own interest rates because the reason why they did well is interest rates came down. So we look at things like, I'd rather buy utilities or consumer staples in bonds, A, because they generally borrow at cheaper levels than others. They're consistent. You know, think about a utility. It's a 12% ROE type of business that is consistent. And why wouldn't I just debt fund those as opposed to buying their equity? Because I don't have a lot of convex upside. So that's how generally we were running it. So what's changed? And something really significant has changed from a portfolio evolution point of view. If you think about where we were pre-COVID, the volatility markets were incredibly low. Volatility was super cheap in the markets. And they were these persistent volatility sellers that were out there. And if you remember where we came in the beginning of the year, the volatility market, the VIX index was at nine or 10, where you could actually buy call options was, uh, you could buy 2% out of the money calls in the S&P at seven and a half, eight volatility points. Think about how that's changed since COVID. Now volatility has exploded higher. So one of the things we've done that we've changed quite a bit in global allocation, we were a big buyer of uh, optionality of call options, particularly it helped us in a big way when the market went up and then when it went down because our call premium went away, it didn't hurt our portfolio nearly as much as otherwise would have. But now you can build income in a portfolio. And so some of the things we're doing today where we think the equity markets have run up, you know, we think there's a need in the world for income. And so one of the things we've been doing is with volatility markets so high, taking some of the those companies we like that are in the fast rivers of cash flow, some of these technology companies, some of these healthcare companies, and you can actually sell call options against your position and build income. And with volatility so extremely high and valuations have been moved up. So it's been a big shift in terms of how we're managing the portfolio. And then the other side of it, because I do like these fast rivers of cash flow to the tech companies, healthcare companies, et cetera, I do think they're even more durable on a go-forward basis as we live in a more virtual world from here. So, you know, we haven't really changed our concentration. The only thing we've been doing is capping some of the upside by selling some of the calls, but building income in the portfolio recently. So those are some of the big shifts. If I may interject with a quick question, fast rivers of cash flow. Are there any examples of industries or business models where I guess your perspective and orientation on whether it delivers fast rivers of cash flow has completely flipped since coronavirus burst to the fore? Uh, are there industries that you think have just fundamentally broken and no longer deliver the requisite cash flow? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, on the negative side, it's easier on the negative side. I mean, some of the transportation and leisure sectors and air you know, are going to be hard for a long time. I mean, as the economy reopens, you know, you think about some of the manufacturing businesses that will come back faster, you know, witnessing some of the technology companies or asset light companies that can work remotely, you know, those businesses, you know, are certainly going to be, you know, more consistent and continue to create that high level of cash flow. And then, by the way, it's also a regional dynamic. You know, one of the things that I think that you're seeing play out globally is those areas that have invested in R&D and CapEx and are at the innovative forefront tend to be located in the U.S., tend to be located in China or parts of Asia, whereas you don't see it in Europe, you don't see it as much in the emerging markets. So a lot of what this has done, we think about fast rivers of cash flow. And you know the way I think about those fast rivers is I try and cut it two ways, regionally and sector-wise. And what we try and do is we say it's like a grid if we can position ourselves in that portions of the grid 
that are in the fastest rivers regionally and the fastest rivers by a sector breakdown, then we got a better chance that we're going to win more persistently. So today, you know, we don't think monetary policy helps Europe grow as fast or really works at all from where we are today. But we do think that there's a vibrance to what the U.S. is doing, what Asia is doing, parts of China are doing. And then sector-wise, we'd like to stay in these companies that are in the uh, technology, healthcare. And quite frankly, you know, it's a big screen for us. And it's been amazingly intense in terms of how it's worked, is who is invested in R&D and who is invested in CapEx. And when you run revenue and EBITDA, you know, with a lag from who's invested in R&D and CapEx, then it becomes really clear who's going to drive cash flow on a forward basis. And so we've, if nothing else, we've, uh, we've increased our rigor and our attention to that. So the Fed has essentially proclaimed itself the buyer of last resort in certain areas like corporate bonds, like municipal bonds, and that appears to have stabilized these markets. But do you think that there are underlying imbalances on balance sheets or in market structure that have gone unresolved and could threaten stability in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think early on, I think right as the Fed was starting to execute this program, you know, one of the things we said is, you know, following the Fed is a durable strategy. But I think it's become much more nuanced. You know, when it was follow the Fed around interest rates, particularly front end interest rates or the short end of the yield curve, you know, the Fed can control that directly. And they have a pretty good way through quantitative easing to control the back end of the yield curve. So treasuries for sure. And then mortgages, particularly agency mortgages. It's a place where following the Fed made a ton of sense because the Fed, that is part of what has been their remit and has done a tremendous amount of buying in that space and wants to keep home prices elevated, wants to keep mortgage rates down. But then I think there are other places. I don't think following the Fed in credit, which I think a lot of people have said will just follow the Fed because they're entering the investment-grade credit market and now they're entering the high-yield market, so I'll just follow the Fed there. I don't think that's a good strategy. I think what the Fed cares about in credit is making sure the markets are open making sure they're liquid, making sure there's no emergency liquidations. And you still have to do your credit work, particularly in high yield, because they've entered the top part, the highest quality end of the CLO market. That doesn't tell me for sure, gosh, I'm just okay buying any CLOs. In fact, you've seen a bifurcation in that space. You know, the other place where the Fed has to do more is state and local and the municipals in the municipal market, where there is still pressure. And by the way, it's a place where there's got to be fiscal initiative as well. But the municipal market is still a difficult place to be, particularly given how where yields are today in that space. So still there is more to go. I think the Fed will probably do more there. And then I think there's some interesting ways that the Fed will progress from here around um, some of the lending and where they've been supportive around small business. You know, we've seen stories recently about things like university funding, et cetera, And that's the next evolution of where I think it's going to be fascinating in terms of where the Fed goes. And listen, I think they've been historic, and I think they've been amazingly um, thoughtful about how they've addressed these markets and being thoughtful and innovative about how they do it. But I don't believe in the thesis away from treasuries and mortgages that you just follow the Fed uh, willy-nilly because the Fed's not trying to move prices in a certain area, certainly not in credit. And so do you see evidence that there are other investors out there who perhaps are disagreeing with you in effect and they are following the Fed and perhaps they've pushed prices of things like corporate bonds back up beyond what are sustainable levels given market conditions and some of the credit risks that still lurk? Yes, I think so. And in fact, you know, I hear it all the time 
where people say, you know, I'm buying, for example, investment credit credit, which by the way, we're buying as well, but in a, in a slightly different way. But people say, gosh, if the Fed's in, they're going to make sure that market holds up well. I'm not sure. I really believe that. What the Fed's trying to do, the Fed's been buying the one to five year part of the marketplace from a maturity point of view, and they're trying to make sure that liquidity is in good shape for companies. And then they want, and part of why they're keeping real rates down or nominal rates down in the longer part of the treasury market is they want companies to fund themselves in the private markets. And so I think you've got to be really thoughtful about you know, the companies you're buying, where on the yield curve you're buying. I mean, quite frankly, now because of what the Fed has done, because there is such a a view that, gosh, if the Fed's going to buy one to five year investment grade corporates, I should just do the same. To fund companies at one and a half percent, two percent, low twos, you know, in, in what is one of the greatest shocks to the economic system we've ever seen, you know, to fund that at one and a half to two percent, I'd much rather buy companies in equity form and or, you know, buy them out the yield or further on the yield curve where I'm getting paid for that yield. But uh, I wouldn't. I think there is too much overzealousness that, gosh, I'm going to be okay as long as the Fed's there without doing their credit work. And I hear it all the time. You know, maybe shifting gears to talk a little bit more macro, putting aside matters of public safety, and I realize that we can't do that so easily, so I don't want to sound flippant there. But if we were to put that aside for a moment, we're seeing a gradual reopening of some states. and And so what do you and your team think are the economic implications of this? So, you know, it is hard, frankly. I think it's the hardest thing to assess today in investing, and it's the hardest thing to assess. You know, we do an extraordinary amount of data analysis and data mining trying to understand economic conditions, not just where they are today, but, you know, where is the puck going, as it were. And it's really hard to understand the reopening of businesses, by the way, and specifically by asset class. We're encouraged that you're seeing some reopening in terms of the economy. And, you know, quite frankly, there is an exponential cost for not opening some businesses over periods of time. You know, when you look at restaurants and some of the leisure areas, et cetera, you know, the longer it goes on, you create an exponential risk, particularly to small businesses that don't have the resources to make it through. So we're at such an incredibly important inflection point around where that goes. And so I am sympathetic to opening businesses. It's hard to map it out, quite frankly, with any really good data because it's regionally diverse and then it's by industry diverse. So the way we've done it from an investment point of view is, you know, the places, you know, if you think about in commercial real estate or you think about in residential real estate or some of the asset back markets, you know, there's some industries that it's very hard to get your arms around you know, we talked about airlines, we talked about hotel, even office property. It's hard to understand how does urbanization evolve from here. It's very hard to think about, oh, are people going to come back to the big cities in the ways they did or, or start to be more dispersed across the country or across the world? So the way we've done it is that, gosh, in those areas where it's harder to analyze, we want to own the higher quality end. And then we're willing to take the risk where we think it is more clear you're going to have a more normal in operating environment. We talk about tech and equities, et cetera. But those are places, you know, we think about cable, you feel pretty confident in terms of how that's going to play out. Some of the media parts of the market, you feel pretty good about, you know, can create a sense of normalcy sooner. But we decided to stay high quality in the areas that it's just so hard to map and to model and that we're going to be much slower in terms of taking risk in those spaces. 
So does it strike you that the market seems somewhat blasé about the possibility of further fallout, especially if COVID resurges in the fall or winter as it's widely expected to do? Uh, Yes, but there's something that is, you know, it's a long, long discussion without taking too much of everybody's time. The amount of stimulus that's going in is immense. And, you know, we do a bunch of analysis just, you know, to throw some numbers out at you. I mean, the the monetary policy side, if you go back to QE1, QE2, QE3, et cetera, you're talking about roughly, roughly, depending on point in time, about $3 billion a day that was going in. We're talking about $26 billion a day that's coming in through monetary policy. And then we've mapped the numbers that are coming in around the fiscal stimulus. And, you know, we've shown some work, and I've put it in the media otherwise, that the sheer size of over $2 trillion of stimulus is so big and more is coming that you actually, if you just map it out, the income level if you assume it all gets into the right places and you assume that the savings rate doesn't move up dramatically, there's actually more stimulus and more income effect, positive than negative. So you think about what that means, that the sheer stimulus can lift asset prices more than the economy necessarily benefits. And by the way, when the Fed moves treasuries to zero, you create this dynamic that, gosh, I can't buy treasuries or I can't buy some of the lower yielding assets, mortgages, et cetera. So gosh, I got to buy equities. So the market is de facto becoming blasé, you know, because they got to put money to work in different places. That is a little bit daunting. It's part of why we talked about we've been reducing some of our equity exposure, which by the way, I think over the medium to long-term equities are actually fine. But near term, I think the markets have become a bit comfortable. And it's interesting not to get too technical. When you look at some of the volatility markets, the longer dated volatility is still higher than it normally is. And I think that's a reflection that the markets are being pretty thoughtful and pretty precise about, gosh, you could have a second wave in the fall. And I think that's why you're seeing some of those longer dated volatility markets, some of which we've been, as I said, been selling some of that volatility against some of our current positions. But, you know, I, I think what, um, you know, people regard it as the markets as somebody's disposition but what ends up happening is when you create this much stimulus and this much liquidity, the money goes somewhere. And when you make certain assets unattractive, then it lifts you know, some of the assets that have some upside, i.e. equities, or some of the yielding markets. Maybe to focus on the labor market for a moment, granted there's been a monumental amount of stimulus that's been pumped into the system and the economy, as you point out still seems there's a risk of things breaking in the labor market. I think that you've mentioned previously the importance of employees staying connected to their employers during the crisis. And so can you explain what you mean by that and why it's structurally important to the labor market for this connection to be maintained? So, you know, we've done an immense amount of work on labor trends and demographics and you know, there's some things that are really, really important around the demographic evolution, the aging of the economy. And particularly when you look at parts of the world, you look at places like Japan and Europe and where the aging is so much more prolific and where it's so much harder for growth to be you know, anything other than mediocre because of the aging demographic. Well, you still have that in places like the U.S. And, you know, it's still important. I mean, the reason why we were going to a, a, the unemployment rate pre-COVID was 3.5% going lower was because, you know, because of the demographic, you don't have as many workers, particularly in that 30 to 45-year-old age bracket that tends to be the most vibrant in any economy. 
So anyway, that's one part of it. And one reason why I think that you know it's really important to follow these labor trends and what happens and how it impacts consumption. But I think there's something else that people don't really talk about. And part of what we talk about the connection around labor, et cetera. There's a number of reasons why people go to work. And I, you know, I've studied this and I've learned this from people in the technology space quite a bit. People go to work, A, obviously to earn a living, but they also go to work because it's their meaning, it's sort of their purpose. And that's really important. And it's part of why people working, whether it's virtually or otherwise, they have that. People go to work also for community. I think people underestimate how important community is in terms of, gosh, as a group of people I associate with, and you know, it's sort of fulfilling in terms of their lives. And then, and then the last thing is people go to work because of growth, whether that's intellectual growth or the ability to um, progress in terms of where they are in life. And you know, I think employment goes well beyond people go to work to get paid. And I think there is an incredible sociological as well as economic set of ramifications for employment. And that's why, you know, we talk about it quite a bit. We talk about connection in employment quite a bit. You work for a large influential firm and that gives you access to management at the firms whose issues you invest in. What were you hearing from them, from management a month ago? And how has the tenor of those conversations changed as time has gone on and we've kind of gone further into this crisis? Yeah, that's a great question. So first thing, I mean, it hits you on a superficial level is more and more companies are pulling their guidance on future revenues and future earnings. And, you know, obviously reflective of the fact that the uncertainty on how the economy opens and globally is causing them to pull their guidance overall. And then we're hearing that from a lot of companies. And it's not necessarily people tend to view that as a negative. And I don't necessarily view it as a negative. I just think it is appropriate uncertainty given where we are today. That has been the biggest shift. You know, the second part that we, we obviously talk to a lot of companies, as you said, and then we, we look at a lot of surveys that are done. The other thing that companies are doing is more and more looking at technology, R&D, how to make your business more efficient, how do you operate your business, obviously more virtually. And it's pretty impressive in terms of that rate of growth there. You know, the other side of it is, I have to say that, you know, it's hard to say this on a broad basis or generalize it, but we've been pretty impressed with particularly in parts of the manufacturing area, in the home building area and otherwise, that there's some optimism that this is not going to be a V-shaped recovery, but it's also not going to be an L. And that, you know, business will come back and they're seeing green shoots in a bunch of their businesses. Places like China have been a very good illustration of, and, you know, we talked to a lot of companies there. That economy has really, if you, you know, closer to a V-shape than I think others would have imagined, and you see the companies that are selling into Asia or interacting with places in Asia and China specifically, you know, we've been pretty um, pretty impressed with how that's come back. Now, it's different. You know, Europe is still really tough. The emerging markets generally are still tough. But I've been pretty impressed with, the, particularly in some industries, the enthusiasm of some comeback in terms of their businesses. Again, if it's travel, or leisure, transportation, tougher. But other places, you know, better than I would have thought. We're going to turn to investing and allocation more specifically in a moment. But since we were talking policy earlier, you had characterized it. But I'm curious, what hasn't been checked off the list? Areas that have gone unaddressed or that maybe represent a vulnerability where you think further policy action would be welcome? So the big one is state and local. I mean, that is 
the play side, I mean, the amount of funding that's come through state and local has just been immense. And the burdens on state and local from whether it's revenues from the tax side, whether it's the derivative impact of uh, rental payments that aren't being made, and uh, whether it's and then, you know, specifically related to state and local and then otherwise is healthcare reimbursement. I mean, that is the place where there's still more funding has to go. And then to go specifically on that area, healthcare reimbursement is hugely important and not yet sufficiently addressed. And my sense is more is to come there. And, um, you know, I would say lastly, there are some businesses that we talked about, you know, whether it's um, restaurant, travel, leisure, you know, there are some real, you know, I wouldn't say permanent structural damage, but at least intermediate term stress in those industries. And, you know, there is moral hazard issues with how you address those, whether it's in the monetary policy side or from the fiscal policy side. You know, it's really hard to think through how that's going to work out because, you know, no matter what, the virus is not going away tomorrow. You know, hopefully there's a vaccine and, and I'm pretty enthusiastic about the innovation that's happened. And then the vaccine development and testing becomes more aggressive. But the virus and the concern about a second wave or, quite frankly, iterative outgrowths of the virus effects, I mean, it's not going away in 2020. So some of those areas where people are still going to be overly cautious are going to require more more assistance. And um, you know how that plays out is tricky. You know, part of why, from an investment point of view, we just want to be more conservative there, at least for the next few weeks. Well, it seems like one tool that you're not eager to see the Fed use is negative interest rates, which is a topic I think you've written about recently. Can you talk about why you think it would be counterproductive for the Fed to try to engineer, maintain negative interest rates? So it's really hard. Uh, and I would take up too much of your listeners' time because I, uh, I, mean, I, I think negative interest rates, I, I don't think they work at all. And I think the whole dynamic and I think what the ECB will ultimately realize is that in an aging demographic particularly, the debilitating impact from negative interest rates are so pernicious and so much more significant than when you drop interest rates to the zero bound. You know, traditional economics would suggest that there is a real symmetry to interest rates, meaning if you drop rates from 6% to 4% and then from 4 to 2 and then kept going, that the effect would be similar. It's not true, particularly in an aging demographic where people need income. You create adverse impact when you go to negative because you are hurting pension funds, insurance companies. And you think about what it does to the banking system. You would talk about why there's no velocity and why the banking system can't grow of any significance when your net interest margins are coming under pressure and you can't take credit risk because you can't build return on equity fast enough. Um, it just shows this dramatic negative effect from negative interest rates. And then the other thing that I think people don't recognize is why does savings rates go up when you go into negative interest rates? Because people are concerned about their savings. So it doesn't create, in theory, when you lower interest rates, it, it incents people to invest. And I actually think once you breach the zero bound, it actually goes the other way. You know, that gets away from all those shocks and all those negative influences. Then you get into what are, quite frankly, the logistically challenged parts of negative interest rates when you think about banking systems and deposits and how rates work in the government market and other markets. And, you know, part of what the Fed has rightly said and will continue to say, asset purchases, um, flexibility around capital ratios for the banks. There are so many tools at their disposal 
that my hope is, and the way the Fed has been pretty clear about this, that going down the negative interest rate route would be the wrong reason. And I think Europe and Japan will show long term that the better way to do it is you have to do fiscal and you have to create incentives for companies to grow and innovate. And you know the reason why I think Europe's so challenged today is you're not getting enough investment in technology and new business and R&D. And just by dropping interest rates, you're not going to create a demand for credit. You need innovation. You need innovative capital. And um, it's part of why I've argued that the ECB would be better off buying equities than would be continuing to drop interest rates because at least it helps companies with their book capital and their market their market rate of equity and allows them to do M&A and change their business model and allows them to uh, to invest in their businesses because they could issue equity at better prices. So <laughs> whenever I go down that path, I get too passionate about it, but I don't think it works. And I think history will chronicle that negative interest rates is not a good innovation. So deficits aren't on the front burner right now, probably for obvious reasons, but what will be the future repercussions, do you think, of running such massive deficits and further increasing the national debt? So, first of all, I mean, I, you know, I think today, I mean, one of the reasons why we like owning inflation in our portfolios is, you know, nobody's talking about inflation today. In fact, there's a near-term deflationary shock from COVID that gets in, a, you know, where companies have to reduce inventory, obviously, you know, dropping the rates people charge for airfare, et cetera. So, there's a near-term deflationary effect. The longer-term effect, though, is inflationary. And I think part of why we like longer-term inflation is the more and more we put debt on the economy then the more you run the risk of having to monetize the debt. And we go back to Europe and Japan and think about you have an aging demographic, you don't have enough revenue, you don't have enough income to offset the debt burden. So ultimately, there's only one road you go down. You have to rip up the debt. That creates a pressure on your currency, and that creates a problem in terms of inflation. And one of the risks in the U.S. is that that inflation gets imported into this country from other parts of the world. And so I, you know, I, don't, I don't believe in this thesis that so we just keep issuing more debt and that there is no limit to the amount of debt we issue. I will say the United States, though, is benefiting from one thing that is really powerful. And that is, well, A, the demographic, because we can, because more people need income and more people are looking to functionally lend. But the other benefit that is significant is there are four parts to how an economy borrows and lends. There is the government side, there's a the corporate side, there's a the household side, and the financial side. And so people don't look at, they were saying about government debt, unilaterally, but you think about what happened in Europe over the years in places like Spain or Ireland, it was actually the financial debt that really hurt. But you think about what's happened today, individuals, households have delevered, for the most part, have brought their leverage down. Financials, generally, the banking system has delevered. Corporates have brought their leverage up. Um, It's not as large a magnitude as people chronicle, but they brought their debt up. But the point being that it, because the other parts of it are not highly levered, like if you go back to pre the financial crisis, households were levered, financials were levered, corporates were levering, and the government was levering, that is a recipe for disaster. Today, you've got, you don't have nearly that much gearing going on the economy, so the government can borrow more, and because of the aging demographic, you can support it. But the one thing that, you know, everybody looks at static state and says, well, 10-year treasuries at 67 base points, so we can keep borrowing. When you stress the economy at a higher interest rate paradigm, so if you go back to this point, if we got more inflation, when you start to lift interest rates 100 basis points, 200 basis points, those deficits and the debt burden becomes incredibly pernicious. And uh, we've seen CBO estimates. So when you look at 
debt to GDP, it's reasonably sustainable as long as interest rates stay down. But when interest rates start to move up, and if there's an exogenous shock that sends interest rates up, that debt burden becomes devastating to the economy and creates a crowding out effect where it crowds out companies, it crowds out households, crowds out financials because the government has put so much debt on their balance sheet. So the longer term effects, you know, people should not discount. I think today, you know, the government has to spend and has to borrow because this is a one-time shock to the system from COVID. But uh, my hope is a longer term, you have to bring this debt down, hopefully create enough nominal GDP, you can delever the economy. Because I just think this idea that we just keep putting debt on is incredibly irresponsible. So that is very bedeviling, isn't it? The fact that we would applaud on the one hand some of the measures that they're taking to stabilize markets and in certain cases stimulate demand, but then also reckoning with the consequences. And so when it comes to yield curve positioning, duration posture of the fixed income strategies and sleeves your team manages, how do you reconcile those two things? And how does that translate into the positioning that we would see in those strategies? You know, when we think about interest rates, when you take interest rates, we were running a longer interest rate exposure, longer duration exposure in our portfolios for much of this year. And particularly, we loved owning the front end of the yield curve, the two-year point, three-year point, five-year point, with a view that if the economy slowed, not having any wisdom or foresight around COVID, but that the Fed would take interest rates to zero. But that happened. And now when you look at interest rate positioning and the, you know, the five-year treasury the two-year inside of 20 base points of yield, that interest rate exposure doesn't do anything for you in positioning. So, you know, what we've liked to do is hold more of our interest rate exposure further out the yield curve for a variety of reasons. One, there's actually real yield out in the back end of the curve. Two, if we ever get into an economic period of economic duress today, one of the tools that the Fed does have, not negative interest rates, one that they have is to do, like they've done in the past, operation twist or bring long-end interest rates down. So we like owning some of our duration, less interest rate exposure than we had before, more in the long end of the yield curve, uh, more in, you know, it's something we talk about inflation protection alongside of that, where we think inflation could move up over time. But quite frankly, you know, without owning, you know, we can hold more cash in our portfolios. You know, owning the two-year note at 16 basis points is functionally the same thing as owning cash. So one of the ways we've been managing risk is, you know, take some income risk in the portfolio. We've been taking down a bit of the equity risk because it's run so much, but run some equities, uh, depending on which portfolio, have some income, so buy some quality, you know, I call it some of the middle quality income places, parts of the credit markets, parts of the mortgage market, you know, even parts of the high yield market in the right sectors and right industries, and then hold more cash. And um, you can carry pretty well in your portfolio and you have enough upside because of the, the beta that comes through the equity market or or some of these income producing asset classes. But there's no reason to own a lot of short-end treasuries anymore. And quite frankly, in Europe, with significant negative interest rates in places like Germany and France, et cetera, it's not worth taking a lot of interest rate risk today. You have a better chance or at least equal chance of losing money is making money in them today. So with respect to equity, we've had these long-running trends where value has underperformed growth, smaller stocks have underperformed large, U.S. stocks have beaten foreign stocks. So I guess the question is, why doesn't the equity sleeve of BlackRock global allocation lean more in those directions toward value, toward small and mid, toward foreign stocks and away from U.S.? Why is that? So I, uh, you know, I really believe in this thesis 
that it's all about innovation and R&D and CapEx spend. And I think a lot of what is traditional value is not growth. And I think a lot of technology is changing much faster than people give credit to, let alone what COVID did for taking technology to the next level. But I think people grossly underestimate the convexity of upside around technology. Look at places like software development or artificial intelligence or energy um, and how things are changing in extraordinarily fast ways. And your upside convexity of owning technology, the demographic benefit from owning healthcare, and then the consumer being in good shape, um, better shape than it's been historically, certainly with the stimulus, et cetera, is I just don't understand the thesis today of, of, you know, could value, could a traditional value orientation work for a month? It could. Could it work for a quarter? Maybe. And by the way, there are parts of what I would argue that are cyclical companies in some of the railroads, some of the um, industrial places that we like holding some risk um, today. Um, but I have to say, I mean, I, I'd much rather own in equity. And, it, you know, it's different when, when you think about are you a bondholder or, or an equity holder. If I'm in equity, I want to pro- protect the upside convexity of my portfolio. And I want to get as much upside into it. And, I, and this goes back to that, you know, discussion we had early on. When you think about it, it's the same thing when we do real estate or we do it, whether it's a CLO or any financing. If I'm in equity, I want to own the place that I've got the upside and I want to own convex upside. And if, But if I'm taking what we call the top part of the capital stack, senior debt, I just want safety and I want collateral and I want safety. So I, you know, in value, I just think, you know, there are times that it gets too cheap. And, you know, there was a time at the end of last year where energy got too cheap. Recently, energy's gotten too cheap. And so, you know, we view value as something you do more tactical. By the way, a lot of the companies that are quote-unquote value have also put on a lot of leverage. The way they've kept their ROEs higher, <clears throat> the way they've kept their revenues higher is they've they put on a lot of, uh, or their net income, is they've kept their leverage high. You know, that is a really tough dynamic today, you know, particularly with some uncertainty around the economy. So I'd much rather stay in the areas and uh, and um, where you've got some. Now you've got to balance that with do those stocks run up too high, and that's part of what we're talking about. Gosh, now you can sell call options against them because <laughs> people are paying huge volatility for for some of that upside. But <clears throat> I'd much rather be in equity. I I think I think over time people are going to realize that you know equities are no different than when you look at real estate or any other transaction if i want equity i want upside and i want convex upside in return for that and that tends to be in uh in those areas that have a better chance to have free cash flow growth generation and uh, so that that's where our orientation will continue to be maybe a couple of closing questions one more specific which is on agency residential mortgage backed securities which i believe has been pretty big focus of the fixed income strategies that you manage, one of which is BlackRock Total Return. Can can you describe in layman's terms what you think the market is mispricing and and why those securities are an inviting risk-reward trade-off? Yeah. So, <laughs> so yes, okay, yes, except for one nuance to that is that because <laughs> since the Fed started buying them, We've sold a lot, and uh, and you know the Fed has made those has really richened those assets, and so we have reduced a lot of the exposure there. Generally, why we like those assets is they tend to be. By the way, the beginning of this year they were fantastic because I mean, at the beginning of this year the credit markets were much too rich, and you know everybody was buying income, and and the view was we're going to be stable forever. 
and the credit markets were too rich. But the beauty of mortgages, A, they were cheaper in yield than the credit market. They were cheaper from an, on a relative value basis, and they're very liquid. And the, you know, the beautiful thing about mortgages is they, they trade in huge size in very liquid fashion. And so we use them quite a bit. There's also fantastic financing trades we do in um, in mortgages. There's fantastic opportunities uh, in TBAs versus pools or different coupons, you know, uh, Fannie fours versus versus two and a halves. The opportunity set around investing and, and managing risk around it, financing trades around it, is an area that that we think, um, you know, given our research and our analytics and our scale, is is a place, you know, historically, including this year, which has been tremendous around. Is a place where we think there's a great there's there's huge opportunity and they're liquid. Near term, uh, we've reduced a lot because the Fed has made them unattractive, and um, and uh, while they're still liquid, you know there are places that we're doing more in the agency mortgage space. You know, recently around some of the high coupon areas because prepayment speeds have picked up and those assets have gotten a little bit cheaper. But um, but you know we love we love agency mortgages. We think it's we think it's one of the places that you know platform like ours can generate persistent return and um, and and they're liquid and so you could you could you could do uh, relative value trades actively uh, within mortgages and across asset classes. Last question: We obviously have experienced a, a fairly violent sell-off, and, and investors certainly reacted to that. Um, you know, in some very resounding ways, they were liquidating their investments and going to cash. And so I wonder, as someone who's been running money for a long time, what lessons did that experience that you went through in running money for clients over the last few months impart about, you know, your own risk and liquidity management systems? For instance, did it reveal any gaps or areas that you think need to be fortified in the spirit of continuous improvement? Uh, it's a great, it's a great question. And you know, I have to say, I mean, I've been doing this thirty-three years. You know, I'm, I'm, the reason why I found the business as fun as I did 33 years ago is you're always learning. I mean, it, it is, it's the most dynamic industry in the world. I mean, every day there's a new menu of news to react to. There's new, uh, there's new environmental criteria that you're, that you're trying to think through. You know, this one was, I mean, we've never seen, nobody has ever seen anything like this. It come on so quickly and the uncertainty on the backside of it is so profound so I would say generally our risk systems held up really well, and and um, you know what we were able to do in terms of managing our risk, building, and we built a lot of cash, and you had to because the uncertainty was so profound. And so we we held, and we always hold a lot of liquid assets in our portfolios. And the idea being, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Um, you know, one of the things, by the way, that happened during that period was quality assets came under a lot of pressure, and it's because you've sold what you could sell, and and uh, you know we thankfully did not have some of the outflows that, 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 that were out there in some of these areas. But, you know, we were able to sell some quality assets. We were able to sell a lot of these, you know, talk about the front end of the yield curve and two-year notes. And you realize that when you want liquidity, part of what your question about mortgages, you know, mortgages are beautiful in times like this because they generally, you know, they were under some stress then, but you could, uh, you could trade them. So, I, you know, I just think it reinforced this idea of liquidity and make sure you're thoughtful about liquidity. And if I could say one last thing, is you know part of this discussion that I thought you guys I mean some of these questions I thought were superb around that I've been talked talked to me about or thought about for a long time. You know when you think about portfolio allocation, you think about structure of your portfolio, and part of why I talk about equity. You know what does equity do for you? What does fixed income do for you? You know there are parts of their you know what analytics and data have allowed us to do, and uh, and you know we're continuing to build and learn about this. 
is to say, okay, what is that asset doing for you? And and to run it and and do stress testing, scenario analysis, and to think about you know what every asset means in your portfolio and part of what equity does for you you know, should be different than what credit does for you. You know, high, the high yield market came completely unglued during that period. And so part of why I think about if I'm going to own beta in my portfolio, I want convex beta, you know, at the right times. And, um, and you know, it worked out really well. And, you know, some of like having optionality in the portfolio, some of the things that I think we did and I, and I think, you know, we continue to build on. It's like when you use optionality, like call options were incredible for us because, you know, the market was in great shape and it was running and it gave us upside. But then all of a sudden, all you lose is call premium on the downside. You don't lose your corpus on your uh, position. So some of those things proved really valuable. And, and, you know, I think we're in a new era where you could use data and stress testing and scenario analysis. And we're really passionate about keeping our volatility down, you know, relative relative to what the markets provide. And um, there are so many tools at your disposal. And what data and analytics allow us to do is just take that to the next level. Well, Rick, this has been very insightful. Thanks so much for sharing your time and perspectives with our audience. We we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Justine. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.